coming up. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Well, howdy folks, and welcome to Minute 91 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist, minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Father David Mowry. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. And yes, folks, that voice you heard was Father David Mowry. Yes, folks, it's getting a little spooky here, so we decided to bring in a priest. (laughs) We went right to it, folks. We didn't even get any doctors on the show. Father David Mowry, it is so wonderful to have you here with us. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, you know, just just uh, give the listeners uh, a little bit, a little bit of, uh, of an intro um, uh, to yourself. Well, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, first and foremost, thanks so much for for having me on the show. Uh, I suppose I'll start with the the podcast version of of my introduction. Mm. I am something of a professional podcast guest. I style Mm. myself as the chaplain to the Movies by Minutes community. Mm -hmm. So all these wonderful shows that go through films one minute at a time. I've been a guest on a whole slew of them. I was counting the other day and I I got up to around around 24, 25 of those shows, uh, including like multiple seasons because, you know, Marvel Movie Minute, they they get a lot of shows out of their one uh, show title. (laughs) But it's been something I've been doing uh, now for, I'd say about about four years, uh, five years. Oh my goodness. Uh, ever since the uh, ever since the Indiana Jones minute fellas had me on for Last Crusade minute, oh, oh, it's something I've, I've really enjoyed doing. Uh, as a priest, I've been a priest for ten years. I'm a mm. priest of the Diocese of Joliet, which is um, just southwest of the city of Chicago. So it's uh, suburban Chicago, and then down mm. into the more rural parts of uh, the kind of northern part of Illinois. I've served as a parish priest for the first five years of my priesthood in some big suburban parishes in the Chicagoland area. And for the last five years, I've been the professor of homiletics at the University of St. Mary of the Lake Mundelein Seminary, which is the uh, the school that trains uh, priests for about 30 different dioceses across the United States. Wow. Oh, that is that is so wonderful, and we are we are folks. You know, we had to get him on this show. Um, <laughs> already a professional podcasting priest, a professional <laughs> say that three times fast, guys. Professional <laughs> podcasting priest, right? Right. Um, we wanted yeah, so, we wanted Father David on. Well, he was one of the first guests that we reached out to, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we had to find the right time. He told us certain minutes he didn't want to be on, and we were we were lucky for that. Yes. <laughs> Look, I just I just don't do well with needles, and I don't do well with blood. So right. it would I would have been a poor guest yeah. for so any of those. Most minutes. of this movie, most is out. of yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. <laughs> Ah, but this is so great. Um, uh, Father David, could you could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with this movie? The Exorcist is some is a movie that I I think a lot about because mm. it is a movie I was introduced to while I was still in seminary. So for those mm. listeners who aren't familiar, in preparation to become a Catholic priest, a pretty typical path is that a young man will enter into eight years of study for seminary, roughly broken up into four years of college studies and philosophy, mm. and then four years of graduate level studies in theology. So when I was in college seminary uh, up in the Twin Cities, uh, a, bu- a bunch of seminarians were kind of trying to kick it around the idea like oh let's move you know it's a friday night what do you want to do and someone said hey let's watch the exorcist <laughs> okay as you do at a catholic seminary <laughs> of course of course, of course. <laughs> so uh that was i think i was gosh i was either in my first or second year of mm. seminary so i was only 19 maybe 20 years Ooh, old okay uh and had not watched any horror movies growing up uh, oh. yeah my uh just a slight detour my uncle had gotten me a a copy of jurassic park on vhs mm-hmm. remember that uh when mm. it first came out oh, uh, yes. around my like seventh or eighth birthday mm. and my mom took it back to the store because she knew it would give me nightmares <laughs> uh and and i ended up seeing like the the raptor chasing through the kitchen at a friend's house maybe a couple months later and i did indeed have nightmares after that so so for that reason (laughs) never saw any horror movies wasn't a big horror movie fan but you know i was i was a big boy now i'm in college i can watch i can watch a scary movie yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) especially one about the exorcist (laughs) and that that movie left me 
shook Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the end of it. I was not having had no previous experience with anything more scary than the Adams family. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really prepared for what this movie was going to throw at us. And there was a senior who was watching the movie with us. He was in his fourth year of college seminary. And he, he saw that myself and a couple of the other newer students were, were pretty shook up about it. Mm -hmm. He said, Hey, Let's go to the chapel and say a rosary. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that, that's, that's a good idea. Let's, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and so that was the last time I saw this movie oh, before great. re-watching oh. it for the show. Goodness. And so it has always occupied this, this interesting place in my mind because I came out of the movie very shook. But the scene that stuck with me the most Mm. that I would go back to throughout my time in seminary and over my last 10 years of priesthood is uh, Reagan kissing Father Dyer Mm -hmm. at the end Mm. of the movie. Just that that pure, spontaneous act of of gratitude coming from a place that she doesn't fully understand. Yeah. Uh, After she, you have that very intense close-up on the priest's collar. Mm -hmm. That had a big impact on me in that stage of my life because I was only a year or two years into my training for the Mm -hmm. priesthood. And in the Catholic world, uh, there's a very clear message sent that in your early years, there's not an expectation you're going to see this all the way through there's there's no institutional onus Mm. on the men entering in early years that they're going to they're going to become priests there's a lot of language Mm. around discernment around prayer Mm. but making sure that you are open to what god wants you to do that yes the priesthood is a noble noble calling but so too is marriage so too Mm -hmm. is missionary work so too are any number of things so i was still praying through and seriously thinking about whether i wanted to give my life Mm-hmm. to the priesthood, to this life of service, to a life that you know, was going to mean not getting married, not having a family, which were things that I had wanted when I was in high school until God showed up and said, but is that really going to make you happy? Mm. And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I thought about just what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And to see that scene between Reagan and Father Dyer, it had a big impact on me and, and presented this window into what a life of priesthood could mean that I could have this positive influence on people simply by stepping into that office of priesthood, that because of what Father Karras and Father Marin did for Reagan, she now has this affection for anyone who wears that collar. Hmm. And that had a that had a big impact on me and has continued to, you know, in the back of my just imagination, just the way I think about myself when I put on the, the clerical collar and I present myself as a priest, that I'm not just representing myself, I'm representing every priest mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm offering an opportunity for anyone, any priest who comes after me to benefit from what I am able to do by giving witness to the presence of Jesus in mm. this particular situation. Yeah. So yeah, scared the pants off of me, <laughs> but also informed my imagination of the priesthood. So a very, a very rich artistic experience, I mm. would say. Oh wow! Thank you for sharing that, Father David. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad um, uh, you decided to talk about the ending. A lot of people have opinions about uh, the ending, but uh, and we've talked about it on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do believe that it is a ultimately a movie about um, about hope and redemption. Um, uh, a lot of people might uh, um, think that you know it ends uh, on a dark note, but I don't think so. And I'm I'm excited to uh, get to that part and kind of. Like you know, uh, share my own thesis about that. But it it like it it makes me feel better that that you also had a um a, a good feeling from it as well. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really interesting. I mean, we've talked about the unofficial uh, uh, place that this movie has within modern Catholicism, uh, mm-hmm. and of course, the Catholic Church has tried to put out recommendations of movies that that it officially supports. So in mm-hmm. um, 1995, they were trying to put out this list of like the uh, movies that they had uh, suggested. This is what the hundredth anniversary of the invention of cinema and so mm. they broke up into three and like so what the first part is like religion specifically and so it looks like ben-hur and the gospel according to matthew the pasolini version and the mission and then the value section is gandhi you know like, like maybe not uh, catholic specifically but but that uphold our views right bicycle thieves sure. schindler's list and then just art and it picks like Oh, Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like, like it's just an important mm-hmm. artistic movie. But, you know, I think they still shy away, it seems, from, like, The Exorcist. And it's so, it's so interesting to hear, like, you're not the first um, 
Catholic we've heard be moved by the exorcist. You're the first Catholic uh, priest that we've heard <laughs> officially saying that that's something that they've been interested in or that helped mm. them with their faith. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to me how it's sort of in the background of Catholicism since the 1970s, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Um, well, without further ado, let's uh, let's jump right into this minute. Um, we're so glad we got Father, uh, Father David uh, for this one. So our minute begins with the breaking of a Holy Communion wafer. And it ends with Kara saying, well, wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? Wouldn't what drive who out of Reagan? Or Could someone. This... <laughs> or something. Or some somewhere. Time. <laughs> sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why is Reagan? Why? Why? <laughs> where is Georgetown? Well, no, we know. We know, we know we where know Georgetown that. is. But yeah, right, right here. That's actually, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, could this demon be excited for an exorcism? As uh, today's title seems to imply, we'll have to wait and see. But for now, let's get back to the top of this minute. Um, speaking of Catholic things and Catholic traditions, uh, we open up with a close-up of a priest's hands as they break a communion wafer in two. Our priest begins to speak. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, and we realize it's Damien. And I realized it's been a long time since we have seen him, um, as he would say, in uniform. Mm-hmm. Kinnan, Father David, you remember the last time we saw him dressed as a priest? Been a while. He's been in a lot of Georgetown wear, right? His Georgetown mm-hmm. swag, but that identifies him as an athlete and a uh, a professor. Right, right. He's dressed as he he's dressed as um um like maybe a maybe a running coach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then just you know just like as a normal civilian, right? right. I, like mm-hmm. so. So actually, the last time we saw him dressed as a priest was when he was saying mass for his mother. Mm-hmm. It was another right. brief shot of him in the chapel. He was doing mass. He was dressed in in the white robes, and he was saying, "Remember thy servant Mary Caris." And we've seen him since then, of course. But that was, you know, uh, that was the last time we saw him actually acting like a priest, and and not just as a priest in the traditional black, but actually doing mass, which I think is really interesting. These two sort of like bookends we have. Um, and if we go back a little bit further, we see that the last time he wears that uh, traditional black is when he visits. Bellevue, mm-hmm. and he sees mm-hmm. his mother for the last time. That you know, the Demi, why you do this to me? So, and that poor woman ate his collar. Yeah. <laughs> so did you? Did you catch that, Father David? That, that... I, I did. Oh, no, you I, did. I was... Okay, great. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, so I guess well, I'm the only one who missed it. <laughs> well, now, now to be fair, Lesser, I only caught it because I had listened to your episode <laughs> oh, okay, about okay. that minute before I rewatched the movie, <laughs> okay, so I was wonderful. watching for that. But I was also clued into what Father Karras does with his collar mm-hmm. because sometimes he doesn't treat it the way a priest would and other uh-huh. times he does mm. uh like when he gets to his mother's apartment and he takes it off and puts it on the dresser i just shook my head it's like uh, it's unrealistic mm-hmm. I'm out of the movie. oh, oh uh, so you don't do that you can't well, do that well you can mm-hmm. you can but what a priest will do uh, uh they will uh, what i like to call park the car in the garage mm-hmm. <laughs> unbutton the top collar mm-hmm. and then they'll put the tab onto one side of the collar. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got the white on one side and then it's just uh, the the open pocket oh. on the other side. Mm-hmm. You can see that that, or you'll you'll tuck it into the, the front pocket of the shirt. Mm-hmm. But to put it down on the dresser, that's, just, that's not something a priest will do because the priest will forget about it. Mm-hmm. Since I teach at the seminary, I can tell you how many times I have to motion a student over after morning mass and say, you're not dressed. And he goes, what? <laughs> like, and I point to his, his shirt and he's not wearing his collar <laughs> because he forgot to put it in. So uh-huh. a priest will always keep that little tab collar somewhere around the neck area mm-hmm. because you never know when you have to you know, yeah. you know, put, uh, put yourself back on duty. Right. Wow. Oh man, that is so, so that's, interesting. that's why the woman was able to pull it out because he had he had his collar popped mm-hmm. and the tab just kind of hanging out off to the side there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Oh, that is so neat. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Father <laughs> David. Oh, you're welcome. Huh. Um okay. It is interesting oh. what you said though about how we have this connection with his mother and mm-hmm. his clerical garb. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there's there's an element of of priestly culture. There's there's a connection that priests often have with their mothers because as a celibate man, mm-hmm. my mother is the, the biggest feminine presence in mm-hmm. my life. Right. And I, I honor her and, and she takes a lot of delight in her priest son as she takes a lot of delight in all of her children. Hi, Trevor. Mm-hmm. Hi, Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, but there's still always this special relationship between a priest and his mother. And oh. for Karis to have these moments where after the death of his mother, his priestly garb goes away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really 
really good and subtle insight into his continuing vocational struggles right. with the death of his mother and this this major support of his vocation because he's an only child and mm. his mother is a good pious woman she would have encouraged his vocation mm. uh, now she's she's gone on and he loses uh, another anchor that support another anchor that uh, that secures his priestly identity yeah. In the book, we have this talk about um, Karis uh, being on leave, effectively. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the movie, we don't have that. So we just sort of have to right. see it visually and have him being removed, right? We don't get into mm-hmm. a lot of the um, the details about what is going on in his uh, professional life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do have some other people kind of like voicing, I think, his own inner fears and doubts. We have much, much later, we have mm-hmm. the, the demon speaking in his mother's voice saying, like, if only you had been a doctor instead of a priest, mm-hmm. I could have, you know, lived in a nicer place. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is all your fault. But then, I mean, even before that, we have, you know, we have Uncle Tito. She's like, you know, it's funny. It's, um, talking about, <laughs> You're not a doctor. Um, you leave her all a, alone. Yeah. Um, Thanks, so, Uncle Tito. I know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but like, and, and that, that made me wonder. It's like, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the on the show, Keenan. What do you what do you think Mary Karras thinks of her son being a priest instead of a like we know like we know what he mm-hmm. fears and we know what Uncle Tito says and we know what right. the demon says, but like what do we think like Mary Karras really feels about about her son being a priest? I think she really appreciates it and loves it the way that that uh, uh, Father David's talking about, but but yeah. at the same time, like he's made this sacrifice um, of of poverty that has now been bestowed upon her. I mean, I don't know if she mm-hmm. puts. That in um, in in those words, right? But but she lives mm. the way she does because she doesn't have anyone to take care of her, right? Right, right. I yeah, it's it like I've I've gone back and forth on this. Like I've I think it's like ultimately I think I think she's proud of him. I think she's yeah. she's you know she's she's very the proud way she lights up when she right. sees him in yes. her apartment. That yeah. that is there's no uh, there's no recrimination mm. there, and the yeah. delight that she shows in when she's at home and she's settled and she's in her space, mm-hmm. I think yeah. reflects her pride in her priest son. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think she. Yeah, she. She might not even associate. You know, it's just like, well, this is just me. This is just you know how I live and where I live, and mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with Dimmy. And Dimmy is a wonderful, wonderful boy, and he's a mm-hmm. he's a, a, a wonderful <laughs> priest. Yeah. Right. Oh man. Okay. So actually, I, I want to read what it says here in the book mm-hmm. um, for this scene, partly because I think it informs uh, what I'm seeing here, and partly because I I just think this is really good writing. Mm-hmm. Again, folks, this is uh, the first edition, which I like better than the 40th anniversary one. Um, he's reworded this scene, but I like the original better. So, so um, you know, just bear with me with this. Uh, okay. So here we go. A reading from the book of Blatty. He returned to the Jesuit residence hall. Found a cubicle, said mass before the rush. As he lifted the host in consecration, it trembled in his fingers with a hope he dared not hope, that he fought with every particled fiber of his will. For this is my body, he whispered tremulously. No, no, bread, this is nothing but bread. He dared not love again and lose. That loss was too great, that pain too keen. He bowed his head and swallowed the host like lost illusion. For a moment, it stuck in the dryness of his throat. After mass, he skipped breakfast, made notes for his lecture, met his class at the Georgetown University Medical School, threaded hoarsely through the ill-prepared talk. And in considering the symptoms of manic mood disorders, you will... Daddy, Daddy, this is me. This is me. But who was me? Yeesh. Okay, yeesh. Yeah. (laughs) So, Father David, um, you might might know that uh, after most of these readings... um, (laughs) It's, we respond with the yeesh. It's the only response. Father Karras is going through it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah he is. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, folks, we like we talked about uh, projecting our own feelings, um, you know, on like close-ups of actors' faces before. Um, perhaps and perhaps because I'm more familiar with the book, I cannot help but see this dawning of tentative hope. As he intones these words, how many times has he said these words? And when was the last time that they meant something? He's saying them now as if he's hearing them for the first time, or perhaps hearing them again after a long, long time. What do you guys think? It's interesting you say, how often has he said these words? Because truthfully, it probably hasn't been all that much compared to to where Father Karras would be in a different era of the Catholic Church. So hmm. we're, we're take, to, take to understand that the movie happens in the now of 1972, 1973, somewhere right. in the early 1970s. Um, 
For those who may not know, the early 1970s was a really interesting time in Mm. terms of the celebration of Mass in the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. because the permission for the celebration of Mass in the vernacular had only recently been given. So if you consider Father Karras's career, he's gotten his, what does he say? He got his doctorate in psychiatry. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some advanced degree. So Mm -hmm. he finished his theology studies, then went away for this further degree. So Father Karras was ordained maybe six years before this movie, maybe Mm -hmm. five. It depends on how quickly he got that doctorate and when the Jesuits sent him away for that, which Mm -hmm. is probably pretty quick because Jesuits Mm -hmm. love a doctorate. (laughs) Um, But that means that Karras would have been ordained a priest right before this big shift from Mm -hmm. the mass being all in Latin to the mass being celebrated in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. So for Karras, these words would have an extra layer of alienness to them because this is not the mass of his childhood. Mm -hmm. The mass of his childhood would have been entirely in Latin. So if we go back to how his mother supported him and his his connection there, here's another area in which Karras' priesthood is alienated from his past. Because now, yeah, he's celebrating Mass in English, which he speaks all the time, mm. but it's there's a strangeness, there's a newness to it that he's still coming to grips with. And when I talk to priests of Karras' generation, mm-hmm. who you know, would be now 50 years older than that, who came up through that time, you know, mm. the, the turnover, the change this represented is unimaginable Mm -hmm. to me having come up during the time when the mass was celebrated entirely in English. So I think, yes, there's the interior struggle, the, you know, dare not hope and put his belief in uh, the Eucharistic mystery that's in front Mm -hmm. of him. But there's also the fact that the mystery is laid bare in a much more uh, accessible way by the use of the vernacular. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. imagine Blatty's writing where he's saying hoc est anum corpus meum. If he's saying those Mm -hmm. words in Latin, there's, there's a better distance Karis would be able to keep from right. the mystery, because okay, it's Latin, blah, whatever. Right. I can just uh. rattle through the syllables. But now that it's English, he can't escape it. It's much Ooh. more present to him. It's part of the, the same texture as the rest of his daily existence. And that presents the greater challenge to him as he's wrestling with his faith and wrestling with his vocation. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. That's really great. I didn't great. even think of that, yeah. Well, we were talking about previous minutes about the Vatican II reforms. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So the, the, the Second Vatican Council happened in the mid-1960s, mm-hmm. and one of the reforms to come out of that was a desire for more use of the vernacular in the celebration of Mass mm-hmm. and in the reforms that happened, especially in the late 60s and very early mm-hmm. 70s. That mm-hmm. became the entire Mass celebrated in the vernacular. Mm-hmm. I'll now get off this liturgical history soapbox. <laughs> this, is, this is not a, a Catholic No, that's podcast. what our, our, our fans we, tell us, that whenever we cut <laughs> ourselves off and say, this is not yeah. a class about um, pagan religion. They're like, no, please. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That's I, fascinating. Our listeners, yeah, I'm, I, I guarantee our listeners uh, uh, loved all of that. That's, um, I certainly did. Yeah, wow. that, I hadn't thought of that, even though we'd been talking about Vatican uh, II uh, yeah. just, just a couple minutes ago. So that's really mm. interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So actually, I want to I want to break this um, this scene down here. Um, so our close up starts when he says, "Again, he gave you thanks and praise," and we can see that his eyes are looking up and out. Um, and Father David, we we talked about. Uh, on the show uh, before about how uh, our main characters, especially Karis, uh, get this look sometimes when they are looking at nothing. Um, they are staring at it intensely as if it were something. And whenever Karis does it, um, it's it's like he is staring into the abyss, whether, whether that be outward mm-hmm. or into his own soul. Um, his has always seemed to be a look of despair. And I bring that up because right now we caught him again looking at nothing but this time i feel like he is seeing something and and so he continues uh, uh gave the cup to his disciples and said take this all of you and drink from it and you can see in his face and hear in his voice this tentative fearful hope beginning to swell up like watch his eyes folks at, at like at, at first they're looking out and up and as he continues to say the words they go back down and now he's looking inward again feeling the words perhaps hearing them hearing his own voice say them um and perhaps hearing that word disciple and that mm. meaning something and and his eyes continue to do this thing where, where like they go up 
and down and up and down and and back up again, almost like he has to check, like like is this really happening? Oh my god, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, there are that one of the things that I was thinking about in watching this scene. First, to your point, Lester, mm. about how it's as if he's hearing these words for the first time, mm. uh, because you know, take something that like we as Americans know pretty well, like the Pledge of Allegiance, and you can mm-hmm. just rattle through that, and then you kind of stop and be like, oh, liberty and justice. For all, mm-hmm. for all. Oh, hmm. wait a yeah. minute, hmm. hold, hold on. <laughs> and you hear that for the first time and it, it catches your attention. And I can see the same thing happening with Father Karras because it, mm. it'll happen to me when I'm celebrating mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, mm. I've, you know, I've said those words, I can't tell you how many times, <laughs> mm. uh, daily and twice on Sundays. Mm. And there will be times where I will likewise realize, oh, hey, I'm a priest <laughs> and I'm saying the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. And there's a promise that Jesus made that he would be present here in this host, in this chalice under the forms of bread and wine. And this is really weird. This is a strange thing that I'm doing. And this this has to be true because otherwise, what am I doing mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. here? Uh, mm-hmm. And there, there's that kind of, that moment of, of self-awareness that I can yeah. see in Karis. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I'm wondering about, given who, who Karis is demographically, how he was trained, he may have been trained in the Latin form of the mass before mm-hmm. his ordination because there wouldn't have been any English texts mm-hmm. to use to train him in. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 they would get too far in the minutia to, to speculate, but in the, in the Latin form of the mass in you know, the mid 1960s, when the priest is speaking the words that introduce, say the hocus denum corpus man, this is my body in the mm. run up to those words, the priest is directed to lift his eyes and look up. Ah. And so in Karis's liturgical training before he says, this is my body, he would have been trained or would have you know, been expected to direct his eyes up. And that is still a specific rubric in one of the Eucharistic prayers that is celebrated in the church today. Uh, whereas in the traditional Latin mass form, there's one Eucharistic prayer that's said every single mass. Now there are multiple different Eucharistic prayers that contain at their core the same institution narrative, the, the representation of the Last Supper, but have different mm. prayers around that Eucharistic mystery. Mm. Uh, so for, for Karis, yeah, there's there's a looking up because part of it is the, the Catholic ritual mm-hmm. encouraging him to look at something. And mm. here there's the beginning perhaps of of what Karis is going to rediscover in his interactions with Father Marin, who is a very by-the-book priest, if there, mm. if you ever met one. Yeah. Because Father Marin is, is convinced that if you follow on the rubrics of the church and you follow through what the church lays out for an exorcism, and likewise, I'm sure, for mass, mm. there is going to be an encounter with the promises of God in doing so, that in that... Uh, in that letting go of my own self and surrendering to something bigger than myself, I am put in a space of awe. I'm put in a space of mystery that can mm. lead me to a truth I couldn't get to on my own. Wow. You know, a lot a lot of performers that I'll, I'll listen to, especially those who say grew up within the faith or any faith or grew up in a small town where the only sort of performative experience they had was going to church or to, um, mm. or to temple, talk about seeing the priest or the rabbi or certainly the cantors uh, as being their first role models for performance. So I hope that yeah. I hope that doesn't, um, yeah, strike it as a, um, you know, sacrilegious or anything, anything like that. But, but what do you think about that, that relationship of, of um, you know, delivering these rituals as performance. We've tried to connect, um, say, the the question we get a lot on, on the show is like, why is Chris an actor for this movie? Um, mm. uh, you know, why why that of all the different professions we could have given her? And that's something I've been trying to explore recently of, of Karis as a, uh, again, not to belittle his faith or anything, but but mm. the, the function of him as a performer as well as Chris. Mm. Hmm. I think there, there's a lot there. I think there's a whole cinema studies paper. In <laughs> That's uh, my job. That's my day job. Yeah. Well, sure. So I think there's a book there, uh, you know, but just for the, um, the public performance aspect, mm-hmm. there's, there's been a lot of work, particularly recently, I'd say in the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years in liturgical studies and looking at the performance nature of mm-hmm. ritual and how that is an essential aspect of liturgical prayer, because when we think of performance in a 21st century context, we think of it as actors presenting characters that is not themselves, mm-hmm. even though it is always Tom Cruise in every movie that he's in, <laughs> ostensibly right. he's playing a character. But there's this understanding that we're in, interacting with an artifice 
And uh, in that typical sense of performance, it's kind of a one-way street. Mm -hmm. In liturgical studies, there's an understanding of, yes, there is a performance quality, but it is a shared performance of both presider and uh, participant Mm -hmm. in the pews, that together the congregation performs and enacts the liturgy. So in a Catholic understanding, if we go back to, like we mentioned, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, the bishops who wrote and, and met and deliberated during that council said that in the celebration of the liturgy, Christ is present in the Eucharistic elements, in the the proclamation of scripture in the person of the presider and in the person of the the congregation of the people themselves. And so there is a constant reference to the presence of Jesus and the performance of the liturgy is what makes that presence manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the church understands that the, the Eucharistic liturgy is the source and summit of the Christian faith, that the church is most itself when it is performing prayer and not in a look at me performance kind of way, mm-hmm. but in the way that you are most yourself when you are performing Kenan, when you're performing mm-hmm. Lester, there's a certain freedom, mm-hmm. a certain authenticity when you're being yourself. And performance is just the best word we have in the English language mm-hmm. yeah. for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, to go and, and do some, you know, uh, um, ancient religious uh, thoughts, uh, you go into the history of that, right? So the first actor that we give credit to is Thespis, and um, mm-hmm. and that was part of a ritual performance right. as well for religious purposes. And his, the the where we started to differentiate what he was doing as, um, uh, you know, what the performers in those rites were doing as religious people and what Thespis was doing is that Thespis said, I'm no longer myself, I am this character. So he would step mm-hmm. forward and say, I am I am Zeus, I am Bacchus, etc. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that was separation was the um, the use of character in performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Thank you, guys. Um, so, yeah. So, Karis says, this is the cup of my blood. His brow furrows, again, like he's realizing the weight and the import of these words that he's been saying. Um, and mm-hmm. then we have our old friend, the J-Cut. Yay. J for jarring. <laughs> um now, actually, now, remind me the difference between the J-cut and the L-cut. <laughs> oh, yes. Keenan, Keenan, take it away. <laughs> so on our, our fancy-dancy um, timelines that we have in our nonlinear editing software, um, so we have our cut, and if we have the sound from the previous shot from the cut bleeding into the next shot, it looks like a little L on our um, on our timeline. So mm-hmm. that is a sound bridge where the sound continues on from the previous shot, or usually a previous scene, into the next one. And the J-cut is the opposite, where we start to pre-lap the sound from the next scene before we actually see anything visually we'll hear the train coming or we'll hear someone screaming right right um and yeah we've got we've gotten a couple of j cuts and we've gotten a couple of l cuts uh in this movie already um and this one def- definitely again like j for jarring um <laughs> and i was actually going to say um it it is and it isn't at the same time the voice we hear is so calm mm. until we remember who it belongs to and and <laughs> and we see that face and we get that little jolt oh, there's another j word um okay and now uh, before we get into the next scene i think it's time for another reading um this is of the scene that we are about to see where damien goes to see reagan for a second time a reading from the book of bloody he moved to the staircase climbed saw chris in the hall she was sitting in a chair near reagan's bedroom head lowered her arms folded on her chest. As the Jesuit approached her, Chris heard the swishing of his robes. She glanced up and quickly stood. Hello, father. There were bluish sacks beneath her eyes. Karis frowned. Did you sleep? Oh, a little. He was shaking his head in an admonishment. Well, I couldn't, she sighed at him, motioning her head at Reagan's door. She's been doing that all night. Any vomiting? No. She took hold of his sleeve, as if to lead him away. Come on, let's go downstairs or we can... No, I'd like to see her, he gently interrupted. He resisted the tugging insistence of her lead. Right now? Something wrong, reflected Karis. She looked tense, afraid. Why not now? He inquired. She glanced furtively at the door of Reagan's bedroom. From within shrieked the hoarse, mad voice, Damned Nazi cunt! Chris looked away, then reluctantly nodded. Go ahead. Go on in. You got a tape recorder? Her eyes searched his with quick movements, little flicks. Could you have it brought up to the room with a blank reel of tape, please? She frowned with suspicion. What for? An alarm. You mean you want to tape? Yes. It's my father. I can't have you. I need to make comparisons of patterns of speech, he cut in firmly. Now, please, you're just going to have to trust me. They turned to the door. 
as an excoriating stream of obscenities apparently drove Carl out of Reagan's room, his face ashen and grim. He was carrying soiled diapers and bedding. Get him on, Carl? Chris asked him as the servant closed the bedroom door behind him. Carl glanced quickly at Karis, then at Chris. They are on, he said tersely, and went quickly down the hallway toward the staircase. Chris watched him. She turned back to Karis. Okay, she said weakly. Okay, I'll have it sent up. And abruptly, she was walking down the hall. For a moment, Karis watched her, puzzled. What was wrong? Then he noticed the sudden silence in the bedroom. It was brief. Now, the yelping of diabolic laughter. He moved forward, felt the water vial in his pocket. He opened the door and stepped into the bedroom. The stench was more powerful than the evening before. He closed the door, stared. That horror, that thing on the bed. As he approached, it was watching with mocking eyes, full of cunning, full of hate, full of power. Hello, Karis. The priest heard the sound of diuretic voiding into plastic pants. He spoke calmly from the foot of the bed. Hello, devil. And how are you feeling? At the moment, very happy to see you. Glad. The tongue lolled out of the mouth while the eyes appraised Karis with insolence. Flying your colors, I see. Very good. Another rumbling. You don't mind a bit of stink, do you, Karis? Not at all. You're a liar. Does that bother you? Mildly. But the devil likes liars. Only good ones, dear Karis. Only good ones. It chuckled. Moreover, who said I'm the devil? Didn't you? Oh, I might have. I might. I'm not well. You believed me? Of course. Oh, my apologies. Are you saying that you aren't the devil? Just a poor, struggling demon. A devil. A subtle distinction, but one not entirely lost upon our father who is in hell. Incidentally, you won't mention my slip of the tongue to him, Karis. Now will you? When you see him? See him? Is he here? Asked the priest. In the pig? Not at all. Just a poor little family of wandering souls, my friend. You don't blame us for being here, do you? After all, we have no place to go. No home. And how long are you planning to stay? The head jerked up from the pillow, contorted in rage as it roared, until the piglet dies. And then, as suddenly, Reagan settled back into a thick-lipped, drooling grin. Incidentally, what an excellent day for an exorcism, Garrus. The book. She must have read that in the book. The sardonic eyes were staring piercingly. Do begin it soon. Very soon. Inconsistent. Something off here. You would like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? So yeah, guys, what what do we make of this uh, this second meeting between Howdy and Karis? It's a little bit different from uh, what we got in the movie. Because mm-hmm. yeah, the, the thing that caught my attention, was, given our talk about clerical fashion earlier in this episode, uh, was how the the devil specifically calls out that he's flying his colors and you get that mm. line about the swish of his robes earlier, which speaks to me of a Jesuit wearing his cassock. Whereas mm. the only time we see Karis wearing a cassock in the movie is not until the final exorcism itself. I think in the right. movie he's, he's got his um, he's got his trench coat on yes. while, even while he's in the room and probably just the tab uh, clerical shirt. But it is interesting that you have this call out to him wearing his priestly robes. And we had the the scene prior of him celebrating mass. So there's, there's this, I don't know, sense of professional duty, I guess that Kara says that as a, as a medical professional, I ought to wear the right uniform in order to present authority to the patient. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to wear uh, the clerical collar because, you know, as we'll talk about tomorrow, you know, there, there are mm. some shell games that Karis is trying to play here. Mm. So who knows how much he's actually buying into the spiritual authority that comes from that, uh, or rather the spiritual authority he carries that's communicated and signaled by that yes. clerical guard. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, uh, Keenan, how about you? Yeah, I think it's interesting how much how much forethought we have in the book, where we're we are seeing what Karis's plans are. Obviously, we're in his head. Um, mm-hmm. In the movie, we're going from this um, this Eucharist directly into this scene without seeing any foreplanning. 
right? Right. So yeah. so we're jumping right ahead, and then we're learning it essentially, even though the scene is from Karis's point of view and it's shot that way, we're learning some of his um, his plans as the demon is learning them, right? Right. So, oh, yeah. here's the tape recorder. We find that out when the demon finds it out, and then right. the holy water. So we're, we'll get into yeah. his plan with the holy water in the book um, uh, later, but yeah, but we we don't learn about the holy water until the demon learns about it. Until much, much of the, right. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and another thing, so this right here is one of the bigger changes from the book mm-hmm. where we have Howdy uh, walking his initial claim back that he is uh, the devil, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and we talked before on the on the Napoleon Bonaparte episode mm-hmm. about about um, what that means here in this movie. Uh, Father David, I don't know if, if you heard us talk about the um, the Laurie Strode <laughs> argument. Um, listeners oh, will remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, listeners will remember. Um, uh, it's, it's where, like, if it's not in the finished film, then it doesn't exist, right? So if you take the first Halloween movie as a standalone film, right, Laurie Strode isn't Michael Myers' uh, sister. If you, if you only watch episode four, Darth Vader is isn't Luke's father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I so, love the sentence, if you only watch episode four. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> if you only you know, watch the season finale of Lost. <laughs> <laughs> if you only watch episode four, you know, the first one. <laughs> the first, yeah, the, the only one. Yeah. <laughs> Not titled episode one for some reason, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so here in in this book, we have a scene with some dialogue that has been left out of the film. And that dialogue is key for anyone, and I include myself, who wants to say that this is not the devil. Or last, not the devil, right? Or not the devil, right. a devil, right? Father David, what what do you think is going on here? Like, does does the movie, does Friedkin want us to see this as the devil? I think, like I had mentioned before, Karis is playing some shell games in the upcoming mm-hmm. minutes, and I think Friedkin is doing the same thing. Friedkin, mm. he's a very good director. He knows <laughs> what he's about. So he mm. leaves enough ambiguity in the text of the film to keep you guessing. It was one, mm. of, one of the shots I wasn't really thrilled about in the virgin version you've never seen before, mm-hmm. where in the exorcism scene, you have that extreme backlit, shot of the Pazuzu statue and right. uh, Reagan doing the weird contortions of like worship in front of it. It was like, that takes mm-hmm. away some of the ambiguity mm-hmm. here yeah. uh, that I kind of like in the original theatrical cut of the movie. So mm. I think Freakin, it wants us to be in the same place as Karis. Like, is this Satan? Is this the big L himself? Mm-hmm. Or mm. is this just a devil? Um, mm. from, from my own Catholic spiritual tradition, if we go to the exorcism ministry of Jesus, mm-hmm. even mm. Jesus doesn't directly encounter Satan and any of the people that he delivers from unclean spirits. Mm-hmm. They're always right. lesser demons or devils. Uh, you get Jesus talking about Satan. You know, when his disciples come back from doing missionary work, Jesus says, I have seen Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Mm-hmm. But right. there's never a direct confrontation between them, you know. Pache, the Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. um, right, and every other depiction of the Jesus story in yes. film, because wow, we just can't help it. It's just too good of an opportunity. Why right. not yeah. do it? It's but Batman and film, the Joker, right? It's, exactly. Yeah. You got it. You, got it. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know how I got these things? <laughs> Uh, but here, I think I think we're just supposed to be in this space of ambiguity mm-hmm. because mm. there's I think as viewers. We know a little bit more than Karis. Mm-hmm. I think as viewers, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen you know, the Ouija board um, mm-hmm. mandala move on its own. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen some weird things where Father Karis hasn't seen. So we, we know like, no, this this is a real devil. We, mm-hmm. this, there's mm-hmm. like something actually happening. Karis is still like, is she just crazy? What's going on? Right, right. So there's, I think that's what's happening in this particular scene. And while I think in the book where you have kind of the longer form opportunity to explore kind of the ins and outs and the games that the devil is playing with Karis... Mm. Um, because you know the, the devil is is trying to squeeze all around and present false facades and uh, dead ends for Karis yes. to run up into, so that he never quite figures out what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, okay. So let's get into this uh, scene in the movie right here. Um, now, one thing I find particularly disturbing, like we said, is that we hear Captain Howdy before we see him. His voice is. 
polluting the sanctity of this uh, uh, beautiful, hopeful church scene. And, and, and then like here we realize what's going on. The picture changes uh, again from something sacred to something blasphemous in, in more ways than one because like, of course, we, we, we got a demon here, but mm-hmm. also this demon has corrupted and wasted the frame of this little girl. And that right there, like we can see as almost blasphemous taking something pure and innocent and visibly uh, uh, corrupting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, here it is, folks. The famous line, Howdy says, what an excellent day for an exorcism. And what do we make of that? Because, like, it, it can be seen a couple of ways. Like, we could look at it like Howdy is showing off how much smarter he is than than Karis. Like, ah, yes, right? It's it's getting about time for that exorcism. I, I, I know what's coming. Like, I'm three steps ahead of you. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, like, like Karis could take it as, it's like, oh, you know, this is the part of my fantasy where the priest comes to uh, exercise me and I'm just a sick little girl, you know, delusional, like here we go, mm-hmm. right? Like which could further convince Karis that Reagan is, uh, you know, is is making it all up. Like what do you guys think? Uh, again, just this wonderful way that this cut works of, um, you know, seeing seeing the Catholic ritual and then having the demon um, – praising you know praising catholic ritual in some way or inviting mm. catholic ritual in a way that that really undercuts some of the beauty of the scene that you were talking about of the both of you yeah. right um which again is a friedkin sort of uh, <laughs> it's a friedkin special of maybe undercutting some of the the nicety the niceness of the previous one going like oh because in the script mm. it's you know we have no matter how you were to shoot it, it we're at least cutting out this line where the demon says hello Karis," and we're, we're sort of we're jumping right. right to it so um yeah so yeah i, I think i think that is a, a you know kind of uh, again, cynical, uh, making the um, taking this beauty thing that that uh, Blatty has and, uh, and cutting into it a little bit. Mm. The way I I hear it is again, and this is a thing I'm going to come back to again mm. tomorrow. There's this play for control mm-hmm. of the situation where mm. uh, Pazuzu and Karis are both kind of vying to be the one in charge of the situation. Mm-hmm. And the problem oh. is is that the Pazuzu is playing 4D chess while Karis is playing checkers. <laughs> uh, because Karis is not willing to entertain the possibility that this is actually a spiritual entity, which is a fallen angel and is smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. So uh, Karis is getting played here because it's, the, it's Pazuzu who is directing the course of the conversation here. Karis is always reacting to Mm. what's happening over the next couple of lines. And so what that does is that it allows Pazuzu to uh, set the tone for the conversation Mm. that by saying what an excellent day for an exorcism, that puts Karis on the back foot. Like why, why would this delusional little girl say that? And that Mm -hmm. makes Karis unsure because either possibility, like if this is an actual devil, it shouldn't want exorcism. (laughs) And if this is a delusional little girl, Again, she should want exorcism. So <laughs> why, why is this person saying this? Right. Uh, yeah. There's there's a a lot of mind games happening both in this this beginning of this scene that we have today and as it continues tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah, so uh, we cut to Karis, and it, yeah, it looks like he, it looks like he was in the middle of um, uh, messing with something out of frame. We're going to see that in just a, a, a minute. Um, and yeah, it, like you say, Father David, this this line makes him stop and, and look up, and and he's got this like smile again again Karis and smiling <laughs> folks remember remember the happier times Tough. earlier in the movie where like when Karis or Chris or Kinderman when they smiled it was like the sun coming out from behind a cloud and it felt good and it was genuine I now, don't remember in- that no <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long ago um but now like in this half of the movie when Karis smiles like they're more like grimaces mm-hmm. Right. Like, like he has, he has like the same stomach problem that Kinderman pretends to have. Right. <laughs> and Reagan too. Remember when she used to smile in the beginning no. like compared to the smile that she's given us now? No, of course we don't. No, thank you. Do not want. No. But yeah. So, so Karis is a little incredulous here. He says, um, you'd like that to which captain Howdy replies intensely. And this is also such a, it's it's such an obscene response because mm-hmm. it's not like yeah. it's not like yeah because you're gonna lose or it's not even like like yeah it'll be fun it's it's like I will relish it I will enjoy it intensely like mm-hmm. it'll feel good for him and that makes me think of like of the actual exorcism later on and we got like Mercedes McCambridge making sounds where you can't tell if she's laughing or crying or both mm-hmm. right and I've seen I've seen villains in movies where like you know the big battle is about to start maybe maybe the hero has already like struck the first blow and the villain you know takes the hit and then like takes the slap or the or the punch and rather than get angry their face like 
lights up mm-hmm. like, ooh, I'm going to enjoy this, right? Like, or, or even just like like Heath Ledger's Joker mm-hmm. laughing as Batman punches him in the face. Yeah, never right? start the exorcism with a punch to the head because it just makes everything <laughs> fuzzy afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I think this is, again, part of Pazuzu's tactic to put Karis on the back foot to present mm. this as something that you know, this delusional little girl slash actual evil spirit is actually going to want. And I mm. think it's in part because Karis is not spiritually prepared to do an exorcism. Mm. I think that's why Pazuzu wants him to try mm-hmm. because mm. he has no authority from the church to do so. He had, he has no personal faith. So on both of those levels, both the institutional and the personal, Karis does not have what he needs to actually bring spiritual power to bear to drive this devil out. And mm-hmm. so mm. Pazuzu, since the, since the evil spirit can see spiritual realities like you and I see color, Pazuzu mm. knows that he would have this in the bag if he can just entice this stupid secular priest mm-hmm. to mm. actually try to engage him on Pazuzu's home turf without mm. any advantages that the church would offer him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, oh, I like this. I, I, this is, it's exactly like you say. It's like it's 4D chess versus checkers. Mm-hmm. Right? No, but yeah, so we cut and now we can see, we can see more of the room and we can also see what Karis was bending down to fiddle with. It's a tape recorder Mm -hmm. and oh my God, that thing looks ancient. (laughs) I I realize this is not something the filmmakers predicted we'd be talking about, but every time I see a bit of technology in this movie, I cannot help but comment on it. Yeah, but yeah, it's the kind, yeah, Chris probably won it on her trip to the $25,000 pyramid, right? Yeah, (laughs) the $2,500 tape recorder. (laughs) She was the first on her block to own one. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, it's the one before this took up a whole room. This was actually Ray birthday present from last year <laughs> there we go that's what it is <laughs> right so so I, I did look it up and steve jobs would be about reagan's age so he wouldn't he wouldn't be around to, <laughs> we had to make it beautiful it has to be beautiful yeah. as well as function beautifully jonathan yeah. ivy is isn't isn't even born yet i'm sure i love 70s technology aesthetic <laughs> yes, right yes. that is to say like the lack of, right? <laughs> yeah. This thing this thing looks like a mini stove with two burners, right? Like, what is, what is this guy cooking up here? We'll have to wait until the next scene to find out. For now, that is all my notes. Keenan, Father David, is there anything else here? That's all I've got. That's it for me, too. All right. Folks, this has been another excellent Exorcist Minute. I've been Lester Ryan Clark. You can reach me on all the socials as Lester Ryan Clark. And I've been Keenan Diaz, and you can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd as Howdy Keenan. Uh, and I'm Father David Mowry. You can find to me on my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. And we got our listener group, Compelling Conversations. Go check that out and request to join and we'll let you in here with us. Thank you so much to everyone who has shared the show by word of mouth or on social media. And a big thank you to everyone who has given us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to our show. Uh, We really appreciate that. It's going to help our little podcast grow and and find more cool people like yourselves. And again, we are part now of the truestory.fm network of wonderful podcasts. That's trustory.fm. FM and you could find a um, bunch of podcasts on many different subjects, including some movie by minute podcasts that have had Father David on their show. Yes. Yes. So go check them out. That's truestory.fm. Uh, okay. Keenan, Father David, are you guys thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. I think I am too. Folks, until next time. The, the power, power of the Joker, Joker compels you. you.